Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week, you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. This episode is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligned in our values of inclusivity and diversity within the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members and empowers them with the skills necessary to excel in their legal career, whatever career that may be. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode. No need to fear, the road to freedom may finally be here. Boris Johnson unveiled his escape plan out of lockdown last week And it looks like we can finally start putting this COVID nightmare behind us, promising that potentially by June 21st, nightclubs could be open again. Can you imagine that? Nightclubs. But with summer looming, I'm sure we're all looking forward to more than just squishing ourselves into packed rooms again, and more so looking to get out of the house, getting some much needed sun and fresh air, playing a game of footy with the mates on the field, or hopping on an easy jet to Barcelona and playing some beach volley. Though, to be honest, it's been so long, I've forgotten the rules to either of these games. Which is why, here this week to remind us of the rules and more, is Rustam Setna, sports law associate at Mills and Reef and Warwick University Law Grad. In this episode, we explore the developing field of sports law, evolving from a niche practice area to a body of substantive law, the multifaceted role of a sports lawyer, and the importance of having a referee regulating the games taking place on the pitch, as it is having one regulating games taking place off the pitch. We also tackle some of the most pressing issues in sports law, specifically the cat and mouse regulatory approach to doping, the classification controversy of transgender athletes in female sports, and the importance of effective governance in sports to tackle corruption among sports organizations. Off the pitch, we discuss Rustam's unconventional road into sports law and his top tips into penetrating this competitive industry through the use of the three Ps, patience, perseverance, and preparedness. So, Without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Hi, Rustam. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, Max. Good, good, good to be joining, and thanks for thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, I'm very sure that we're going to have a great episode today. We have a lot to talk about, but for our listeners out there who haven't met you, why don't you give us a one to two line short bio telling us a, a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm my name is Rustam. Uh, I'm an Indian qualified lawyer currently working on the sports disputes and regulatory team at a UK firm called Mills and Reeves. I did my law degree in in the UK at the University of Warwick quite a long time ago and then qualified in India, which is where I'm from, um, and worked as a corporate lawyer for about three years at a full service law firm, after which I decided to make the switch into sports law, which involved doing a master's in sports law. And sort of one thing has led to the next and I'm here now in, in the UK. So quite a zigzag journey there. UK, India, UK, not exactly the linear line as people kind of conventionally like to think of. No, it's been unconventional for sure. Um, aside from the zigzag between the UK and, and India, 
I did my master's in Spain, in Madrid. And during that master's, I did an internship in Rome. Uh, so that's add a few more zigzags to that before I finally made it back here um, to the UK. So it has been quite a journey, fairly long one. But I would say hopefully um, it's just the beginning and so far been worth it. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll get into that. But, but just before we get into your progression up until this point, why don't you explain us what is sports law? I remember the first time I, I read it, I thought, was it just the rules about FIFA and the rules of football? Kind of, you know, what is the law of sports or sports law? Yeah, that, that is a good question. And you seem to have sort of answered it in your question itself, because there are two main schools of thought. And I wouldn't say that one is more right than the other. But the two schools that I would identify are the sports law as a term doesn't exist as a practice area, doesn't exist. It's merely the application of other substantive areas of law in a sporting context. So to give you an example, employment law, contract law, immigration law, antitrust law, um, family law, and so on. And really what that is, is like I said, law in a sporting context. And people refer to this as sometimes sport and the law as opposed to sports law. The other sort of line of thought is that sports law is an independent, substantive area of law in itself. So just like you have a contract law, employment law, you have sports law. For me, this is what I identify with in that I believe sports law is a growing body of case and statutory law that is specific to the sports industry. So to give you an example, and actually to take your own example, you, you mentioned the FIFA regulations. FIFA have a very sort of robust regulatory regime, and some of the concepts within those FIFA regulations are very specific and particular to sport. And that's what we mean by sports law. To give you another example, you have the, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and they have their regulations, which is sort of the principal anti-doping regulation in the world. Again, concepts that are very unique to sport. And I guess finally, you have the CAS, which is the um, Court of Arbitration for Sport based in Lausanne in Switzerland. That really is the Supreme Court of World Sport, as, as people name it. And they're sort of constantly adjudicating issues that relate to sport. And so it's this emerging body of jurisprudence from the CAS that people call Lex Sportiva. Uh, and that, to me, is what sports law is. So I would say the second of the two limbs that, we, that I described. That's quite interesting, this distinction between thinking of sports law as just kind of a practice area, the same way that law firms think of the energy sector as a kind of a practice area where all different types of elements of the law come in to now this, what you were saying, this actual body of substantive, albeit specialist or specialized law. You said that this latter school of thought is, is what's beginning to emerge. Do you think there, there's been a kind of a transition? Is there anything causing it? this rise for sports law or this, this regulatory regimes? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think a lot has to do with generally the commercialization of sport over the years. Right? The more money you have in sport, the more regulation. And when, when it's more regulated, there is a greater room for disputes. And that's sort of what builds this ecosystem of sports law, if, if that's, that's the way to put it. So the increased prominence, the, uh, the increased prominence of sports, especially on a global level. Yeah, the emergence of sports as an industry, I would say, as an industry worth worldwide worth billions of dollars. Uh, and and you, you can see why there, there, there are, there's therefore a lot of interest in it. 
and therefore a lot of regulation. And when there's regulation, there are always people that are flouting those regulations <laughs> inadvertently or intentionally. That sort of gives gives rise to disputes. And that's where I guess lawyers come in. So basically what you're saying is it's just as important to have a referee inside the court or the playing field as it is outside of the playing field and in the in, in the business. I would say so. Yeah, yeah. What is your day-to-day job as a sports lawyer involved? Because we, you were talking before about, you know, CAS, kind of the, the arbitration. Would you describe your, your role as a bit more a alternative dispute resolution? Or give me a sense of what a typical week of working in sports law looks like. Sure. Um, so to answer that first question, I would say, yes, I, I work primarily in, in disputes and regulatory issues. I think the two go hand in hand. But given that I am fairly new in the industry, I have to quote a cliche when I say that no two days are the same because I'm sort of constantly faced with new challenges and and issues every day and, and therefore constantly learning every day. So no two days are the same. But I say that because, I, like I said, the nature of the work is, is, is very dynamic. It's challenging. And if I were to sort of take you through a typical work day, I guess examples would be representing football, clear, or a football club, or even an agent before one of the sports tribunals. So it could be before, if it's a domestic dispute, it would be at the FA, for example, or it would be at FIFA, or even at the CAS. So there's that disputes side of it. There's also the advisory bit of it, which which basically is advising on regulatory issues and the implication of certain regulations on whoever the client is that we're advising, whether it's an agent, whether it's a club, whether it's a player, and and I guess things like advising on contracts as well. So it's it's it really is is, is a full spectrum, but it it all stems from um, sports regulations. All right. It's good that you have that trifecta, you know, not only working on, on contentious disputes, but also having that more advisory, opinionated area. And at the same time, you know, the typical contracts, uh, client relationship building. W- what is it that attracted you to sports law particularly? Especially kind of the zigzags that, that you've done, to me, seem like you had quite an intense passion for it or in, in order to, to go on the journey that you went through. Yeah, I think I think the common denominator for for everyone that practices in the industry is a passion for sport, right? And especially when you're a young law student, often I would say studying fairly dry law subjects. Most people are sort of who are interested in sport would say that oh yes, it's it's the ideal sort of fusion of my passion with academics or profession depending on which state of stage of your life you are in. So I think I think it started it it started that way for me but but I soon realized that just sort of having a passion for sport and saying that I want to combine it with my degree or my career is not really good enough right and I realized that quite early while I was at university and I began looking at sport through the lens of a law student so interpreting current affairs that was there for the world to see, but through the lens of a law student and, in, 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 you know, from a legal perspective, um, questionable how developed my my legal knowledge or expertise were back then, but just sort of looking at on-field events through an off-field lens, if that makes sense. To give you an example of something that really fascinated me was the um, the Lance Armstrong doping saga that, that happened back in 20. 20- 
2012, I think it was. And just the realization that anti-doping as an area was something that, that was heavily driven by lawyers. And I began to grow really curious about, about how these things worked. I had no idea about the regulations or the WADA code at that time, but just began to grow really curious about, about how I could actually get involved with that kind of work. My curiosity led me to, you know, to, to, to read up on sports law issues. I came across a blog at that time called, well, a website at that time called Law in Sport, which today has grown to be, I would say, one of the, the largest, if not the largest sports law resource in the world. And they continue to put out really good content. So these kind of things sort of whetted my appetite for a career in the industry. So sort of breadcrumbs here and there, your passion for sports led you to discover these bits and pieces where, you know, you've uncovered that actually there's a substantial amount of law and regulation that goes around protecting the game, making the game so great, but also being able to anticipate and deal with future implications of new trends, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit, you know, yeah. doping being one of them, but also now more and more this idea of, of gender in sport and all the different kind of facets of that. Before we get into that, what you said that really caught my eye is having a passion is, is, is great, but it's not enough. And I want to ask you about how that applied, you know, when you were transitioning from being a qualified corporate lawyer in India to pursuing a career in sports law in the UK, still in the practice of, of law, but obviously kind of, you know, in another jurisdiction and also in relatively different field, a more specialized field. I told us that you did a master's in, in Spain and then an internship in Rome. But why don't you describe that process? How did you feel leaving that in order to pursue what you're passionate about? And what was it like, you know, during those zigzag moments? Yeah, there's a, a lot to answer in there. <laughs> but, but the short answer is, is that it, it's been exactly the career transition that I had hoped for. If you had asked me maybe six years ago where I'd like to be, I, I would I would have told you practicing um, as a sports lawyer. I have, of course, learned and picked up a lot about the industry on the way. So that answer might have been a lot more naive than today. But to sort of give you, well, what it was like transitioning, I think there's a lot that's a lot that's different. But at the core of it, fundamentally. A lot is the same. And when I say that, I mean that there's a lot that can be transferred over from a corporate law life in another jurisdiction to what I'm doing now in sports law. And those are things like just knowing what it's like to be a lawyer, knowing what it's like to work at a firm, building relationships with colleagues, understanding what it's like to work with different personalities no two people are the same. People have different styles of working. And as a junior, you need to be able to adapt to working with different people. So understanding that colleague relationship aspect. And at the same time, as you sort of grow a bit more senior dealing with clients, which is equally important. So things like that are not specific to sports law, right? They're equally applicable as any lawyer, whether you're a corporate lawyer or whatever else it might be. Um, so I think having that grounding and knowledge from the law firm I was at AZB in, in India is something I'm really grateful for and I believe has helped me sort of make the uh, transition and made that transition a little less challenging. However, substantively, work-wise, it feels almost like a complete career change. Before I started my master's, actually, I hadn't done a day of disputes work in my life. 
And now I'm working exclusively on the disputes and regulatory side of things. So in that sense, like I said earlier, I am learning a lot and learning fast. But it it is it is a whole new sort of world in in terms of the kind of work that, that I'm doing. That's extremely interesting. That distinction between the practical uh, and transferable skills that you have as a lawyer, as you were saying, how to deal with clients and also how to work with others, and also time management and working hard and diligently. And then on the other hand, the substantive and, and practice areas. When you did your master's in Madrid for sports law, was that out of curiosity or in retrospect, is it a condition? I mean, because you know, you, you and I both know that sports law isn't anywhere on the LLB syllabus. It's not even an option. And much less to, I mean, at least to my knowledge, is it on any kind of the legal practice course? So, you know, you, you have all this exposure to law in sports online and through other resources, but tell me a bit about why you went in and did, and did a master's in sports law in Madrid. One thing I will say is that, is that on, the, on the LPC, at least, at least when I did it, we did have a module on, I think it was called maybe media and entertainment law, of which there was a, a sports law. I think it wasn't more than a chapter at least. And the reason I chose that module was basically just to do that one chapter, really. So I knew from the very beginning that this was something I wanted to study. But when I when I eventually decided to do that master's three years after I had sort of work experience at a law firm, it was very much with the aim of, of, of getting a job in sports and getting it in Europe, preferably the UK. And so the master's for me was, it was fantastic, but I would say it, it was it was a means to an end. To me, it, it, it was more about what value I could get out of it to eventually get that job, as opposed to getting a degree and being more qualified on paper. To me, that matters a lot less than actually being able to build the network and knowledge necessary to eventually go out and get, get a job. All right. So, so then essentially it wasn't for the qualification, but it was more for, for the doors that it could open or kind of help you go through. Yes, absolutely. Going back to the the current issues in in sports law, I was quite interested when, when you talked about how what caught your attention was the Lance Armstrong incident in, in 2012. Over the last eight years, you know we've seen more and more doping scandals, most notably state sponsored doping such as Russia. From your opinion, what is the legal framework and attitude towards doping in sports looked like over the years or progressed like over the years? Well. As I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's an area that, that's absolutely fascinated, probably one that fascinates me more than others. And it has been an issue a lot longer than Lance Armstrong in 2012. In that sense, regulations are constantly evolving and trying to keep up with the times. And exactly like you said, over the last few years in particular, it, it always feels like you're only a few months away from the next big doping scandal. And this is because I think as long as there are regulations, there will be people who are trying to, to beat the system. So despite having a, a very robust regulatory regime and arguably robust enforcement mechanism, there will always be people who and medical experts who are two steps ahead. And that's where I think the regulations will, will, will always be playing catch up. And I think generally regulating doping is is always going to be very difficult. It's a, it's a difficult task for whoever is going to do it, whether it's WADA, whether it's international federations, whether it's national anti-doping associations, because it, it always involves 
striking a balance between catching those athletes like the Lance Armstrongs of the world and those who, who inadvertently consume a substance without any intent or sometimes without even even, even any knowledge of, of what anti-doping is. You know, people from rural areas in developing countries who sometimes don't even speak English and they're expected to, to sort of have the really complex regulatory document which even lawyers find difficult to navigate. But but it is about striking that balance. And I think this is why doping will continue to be um, an area that, that that's always evolving. Quite interesting that you that you say the inadvertentness of people who who take doping or who commit the act of doping. Contextually, do do you think that inadvertent doping is is as a result of people who, who live in rural areas and developing countries? Or is it because of any lack of knowledge as to what doping is or what these drugs do? Because if you ask the, the typical person, what is doping? They think maybe steroids or what was it that Lance Armstrong did? Red or white blood cells. So it's about injecting something into your arm. Is doping that simple? Are these drugs that easily to kind of put a red mark on and kind of say prohibited? Yeah, um, it's not that simple. Definitely not that simple. How it works is is there's every year WADA comes out with a list called the prohibited list. And as the name suggests, it's a list of all the substances that are prohibited. But all these all, all the substances on this list are the, the scientific terms. And in, in different countries, you'll have different names for those substances. So a paracetamol tablet could be called something in the UK, it could be called something else in the US and something different in India. And this is just to take the example of paracetamol, it's not prohibited, but say for example that it was, and the athlete did consume it under whatever brand name or form, he would technically be doping. And I guess to, to elaborate on that, like you said, when, when you ask sort of your average Joe on the street what they think doping is, they wouldn't be wrong to think that it's just taking steroids or performance enhancing drugs, which it is. It definitely is, but it's a lot more than that. The World Anti-Doping Code actually identifies 10 different offenses of what qualifies as doping. So the definition of doping is 10 different things. And I think off the top of my head, of the 10, you don't even need to take a substance for about six of those. I could be wrong, but at least four to six. So it's a lot more complicated, a lot, a lot more nuanced. And that continues to evolve because in 2021, we see coming into effect of, of a new WADA code. And it'll be interesting to see how, how that sort of plays out in reality. Just before I kind of follow up with that question, the four to six ways to dope without taking a substance, what would that, what would that be like? So for example, evading, evading a drugs test is considered to be doping. WADA have a very particular system called the whereabouts system. So basically, this means that an athlete has to always update WADA of his or her whereabouts so that uh, doping control officers, as they're called, can show up for random surprise testing. Because if, if testing isn't random and surprise, then there's no point in, in testing, right? So if you have three whereabouts failures over a period of time, that amounts to an anti-doping rule violation and, there, and therefore you are subject to other exemptions, etc., which I won't get into. You are eligible for a sanction, but subject to sanction. So then doping is not only the act of taking these substances, but also anything that either A, gives the perception of taking these substances, or is, on the other hand, I think what we've been going around the bush on is also the malicious aspect or the evasive aspect of 
of the act itself, whether that be manifested through intention or, or just through kind of the manner and execution. Yeah. So, so things like things like tampering with the doping control process as well. If you give a sample and then you try and you know add some salt into your urine to 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 increase the specific gravity or destroy a sample, that's all part of tampering. There's the offense of prohibited association, which which basically means that if I were to associate with someone like Lance Armstrong, I would be committing a doping violation. Um, administration of substances. So I don't need to be taking the substance, but if I'm found injecting steroids into someone else, that's a doping offense. So it's it's wide. The, the, the WADA really do cast their net wide. And I guess if the intent is to catch the cheats, then I think that's what they've got to do. But in, in the process, one would argue that they do catch quite a few small fish and, you know, grab the low hanging fruit. Yeah. So, so obviously kind of, you know, the idea that the that the net is cast wide is understandable, but at the same time, there has to be some sort of principled regulation or kind of some contextualization of these cases. I mean, I can imagine now just just thinking about the Olympics having been pushed to next year, that especially during all this chaos, this won't you know only cause uncertainty and having impacted athletes, but will kind of create the incentive to, for for doping to make up on that loss a lot a lot greater. Yeah, I mean, there have been reports that, that I've read that during the pandemic, certain federations or certain countries have not been as vigilant with their testing for obvious reasons. And this this sort of opens up a window for athletes to, you know, engage in, in any of these practices, hopefully not. But but I wouldn't be surprised if, if there is a sudden sort of resurgence of, of, of cases. Yeah, <laughs> time will tell, I'm afraid. Time will tell on that one. Now going on to the to, to the second one, uh, gender in in sport. What's quite interesting is the two angles. I mean, on on the one hand, we have the issue of of, of transgender people in sports and their fight to be able to compete, and kind of the the issue of categorization. But also, I want to take a moment and see how the law plays, especially in the kind of inequity between male and female sports. I think this was the issue, especially taking place in the context of football and the women's American football team versus the men's American football team, kind of the vast differences in pay and salary and kind of recognition. Is there prominence and regulation and proactive changes on that front in, in the sense of you know making male sports and female sports of the same sport of equal representation, equal prominence, equal pay? Yeah, I think I think definitely that it needs to happen. As you mentioned, there's a growing um, trend um, all across the world of, of, of whether collective bargaining or through the courts, cases of, of women actually fighting for equal pay. And I mean, I don't see why not. There are arguments that are for and against, and we probably could go back and forth forever on these on these issues. But in principle, yes, why not? I mean, there aren't any regulations per se on this subject. Mainly because it's it's a matter that that varies from country to country, sport to sport, and the commercial appeal, obviously, of those sports and how much money that sport actually makes. So if it's a if it's a sport like football that brings in a lot of money, or tennis, for example, the ability for females to earn a lot, uh, even though not nearly on par with the male, is higher than I guess for financially lesser sport such as maybe wrestling or women's boxing or something like that. So I think it's um, it's something that will vary across the board. But when I think of the issue of gender in sport, 
to me, what again, another really fascinating area and an area I'd, I'd like to have more knowledge in because it's 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 not something I can sort of claim to know a lot about or have even worked in. But is is, is the area of participation, classification of gender in sport and, and their participation, like you mentioned, mentioned um, with transgenders and how how governing bodies will will choose to deal with allowing transgender athletes or not just transgender, but differently developed athletes, as was the case with Casta Semenya, how they will allow these kind of athletes to, to, to compete and what they do to regulate it, if at all they do, again, involves striking striking a balance. And again, this is a balance between being inclusive and fighting discrimination and standing up for human rights on the one hand by allowing these people to compete, while at the same time also protecting the female class, because what, what this effectively means is that you, you you are arguably compromising the integrity of female sport by allowing people who are at a natural advantage to compete against you. So effectively, no matter how hard you train or practice, you will not be able to match up to that standard. Um, so again, this involves striking a balance. And I think rightly or wrongly, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, the CAS, decided against Casta Semenya last year. Can you explain us a bit what is the Casta Semenya case? Yeah, it's a fascinating case and I guess fascinating for, for us as, as sort of practitioners and, and the common man, but maybe not so much for her. And I really do feel for her. But Casta Semenya is basically is an 800 meter South African runner. She is a world record holder, Olympic champion and world champion as well, if I'm not mistaken. And she basically is what is what they classify as has a different in, difference in sexual development. So she's not transgender, but she has a unique, I think, one in a million condition where her chromosomes are sort of, I don't know the technicalities of it, but but she has what they call 46XY or so, so something like that is, is, is her condition, the cro- her chromosomes. Basically, she is female, identifies as female, but she has elevated levels of testosterone that are within the male range. And what, what, what the CAS said was basically that for the events that she participates in, so for, for the 800 meters, I think there was a bracket that, if I'm not wrong, was the 400 meters to the mile, so to 1,600 meters being the upper limit, 400 meters to 1,600 meters. Testosterone was was well believed to be the marker of her performance. So in other words, her performance was sort of determined by the elevated testosterone level that she endogenously produces. And and they 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 held that yes, what the rule was basically that you can't compete unless you take medication that brings that testosterone level down to permissible female levels. And yet then then you can compete within these events. So theoretically, if she wanted to become a sprinter and run 200 meters or 100 meters, she could. She could without taking any medicine. For now, the rule only applies to these particular events. But they said that yes, this is this is definitely discriminatory. But the discrimination was justified in the interest of protecting the female classes. And there's there's a lot of literature, a lot of debate around it. I would urge anyone um, that's interested to look it up and, and, and read up further about it. There's no lack of, of, of information available online. But Castor really, she, she, she lost her case at the CAS. And then the, the, the CAS actually provides for 
and appealed further to the Swiss Federal Tribunal, which is the Swiss Supreme Court. And I think less than a month ago, or well, at least in the last couple of months, the Swiss Federal Tribunal dismissed this appeal, upholding the decision of the CAS, saying, saying that they, they, there, was no, there was no basis on which they could... They, they, they could um, Overrule or nullify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as things stand, Castor, um, well, she can appeal further to the European Court of Human Rights. But as things stand, she, she, if she wants to compete in the 800 meters, she is going to have to take that medication, which is questionable, right? That, that there are there are sort of maybe health implications with taking medication to lower your natural readings. So yeah, there's it's it's, it's a very controversial gray area that I think um, sooner rather than later, other sports will have to grapple with as well. And, and it's quite interesting that and at the end of the day, a lot of these debates, especially with classification of, of athletes into kind of either the, the female or the, the male category, have to do with this idea of testosterone. Is this classification based on testosterone levels because it's the most accurate indicator or is it because it's the only indicator in which the industry or scientists, medics have been able to really distinguish male and female? That is the million dollar question. And those, those, that, those on Castor's side would argue that testosterone is not the only marker of performance. What about things like, well, just her hard work, the, the work that she puts in her training, um, her natural ability as an athlete. But for now, there appears to be a, have been some sort of evidence that was presented. I'm not, I'm not very scientific, so I wouldn't want to comment on what the implications of that evidence was. But there appears to have been some sort of evidence for now that has satisfied the cast that testosterone is, in fact, the marker for performance. It's quite interesting what you said about the other factors and, and the hard work, because obviously this idea of, of, of classification, especially um, attributing good scores to performance, to natural genetic composition, or for example, in, in the case of transgender transitioning athletes, perhaps the idea of artificial medical levels or testosterone levels. That kind of creates a sort of paradox in sports in the sense that a age-old conception of sports is hard work, development, putting in the time in practice in order to get those gold medals. And yet at the same time, we are already taxonomizing and setting parameters into these individual sports and saying that one's person's ability is somehow predetermined by their genetic predispositions. Yeah, I mean, it's not as, as simple as that. There have been arguments raised in the past about things like, what about Michael Phelps? He has a naturally wide sort of wingspan and torso. What about basketball players? They're naturally six foot six, that kind of thing. But I think, I think, I think the point that's being missed there is that basketball or swimming is not developed, is not divided on categories of let's have a basketball competition for those below six feet and those above six feet. Whereas everyone agrees as a starting point that the male and female competitions should always be different because if, if they were together, I guess in most cases, there would be a massive performance advantage in favor of the males, right? And that really is, I think, the distinction to be made there. All right. I didn't think it like that. I'm quite interested as well in, in kind of leading this on to a third trend, just based on kind of our conversations throughout these trends with doping and, and gender in sport is, is the role of these governing bodies. And at the end of the day, without much knowledge myself, 
a lot of these governing bodies, especially because of the prominence of sports as an industry and the money within it, you know, organizations like FIFA or somewhat started out as companies or operate like companies. And just like FIFA, we know that there are some instances of corruption within these governing bodies. What is there in sports law to prevent from the people who are making the regulations themselves to manipulate or rig these regulations in order to favor those in control or those with, with particular interests? Yeah, you, you, like you say, there's, that you hear of corruption at the governance level a lot, and there is a growing push for good governance and, I guess, greater ethics, anti-corruption in sport. There's, there's I guess, a bunch of checks and balances in place to prevent the occurrence of, 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 of these things. For example, taking the example of FIFA, they have what they call the ethics code, the code of ethics or ethics code, which basically sets out what sort of constitutes an act of corruption and how people who who, who are who are sort of caught will will be will be dealt with, and and that 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 could sort of range from um, fines to complete bans from the game, as we've seen. Obviously, this is all within within the realm of private dispute resolution, so that it's tough to impose criminal sanctions. But when 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 these things go into the the public realm and and in 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 terms of it being a criminal issue, then you see um, well people even going to jail. You saw that last month with with the former president of the IAAF, the the World Athletics uh, now called World Athletics, uh, but the International Federation for Athletics was recently sentenced to, to to prison for basically corruption. So there's different ways of dealing with and, and different governing bodies have their own set of regulations as to how these things are prosecuted. All right. So it's not just a, just a let's leave these organizations to regulate themselves, but also as well kind of some external checks in order to kind of at least, you know, the bare minimum to make sure, because especially as, as we were talking about just now, kind of, you know, when you have these issues of, of transgender athletes in sports, making sure that there are no human rights discriminations or any other type of discriminatory acts and leaving, say, private organizations to regulate these issues by themselves. Yeah, I think, I think in, in, in terms of human rights, you make a good point. And there's, there's, again, a growing push to actually make human rights considerations a part of sports regulations. And you don't see that happening very often. But but to take the example of Castor, she still can appeal to the European Court of Human Rights, which is a public court exercising a public function as opposed to the CAS, which is private arbitration. Is there a history of, of a lot of courts, say, kind of whether it be the ECHR or whether it be national federal courts or national supreme courts, is there a history of them intervening in the area of sports law or is it rather reluctant? Well, historically, historically the CAS was born out of the need to prevent that from happening. And that's why that, that's why that's why the CAS came into existence in the mid-1980s, to prevent what they call parallel proceedings um, at the national courts. Um, now and again, you do see national courts take jurisdiction over certain matters. And you hear people saying, oh, this is the death of the CAS, etc. And this, this 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 doesn't have to necessarily be in, in human rights terms. It could be any any sort of it could be an antitrust dispute, it could be contractual, it could be an anti-doping dispute. But mainly I think the sort of backtrack a bit, the CAS has has sort of retained its position as as the supreme court for sports disputes globally. 
Now, now I want to transition here. We, we, we spent we spent a good time talking about the current trends in sports law and, and very much talking about the substantive. But obviously, you know, your your journey into sports law was was zigzag. I'd imagine that, as you said, in retrospect, a lot of your experiences that you learned on along the way have fueled you and prepared you to do what you're doing today. So it's not that, for example, those years were a waste, so to speak. In your, in your extensive experience leading up to this point and on your career journey into sports law, what do you think are the skills necessary for students to excel as a sports lawyers, whether it be both practical, but also in terms of the substantive? Yeah, so I, 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 to, to start, I, I guess I, I 100% agree with you in stating that the years I was not involved with sports were definitely not wasted. They, in fact, sort of helped lay the foundation but again, to state a cliche, my my first piece of advice would be become a lawyer first. If you want to be, if if, if you want to practice in lawyer in, in sports law, focus on qualifying as a lawyer and then developing your skills as a lawyer and continuing to develop your skills as a lawyer. Because I think if there's one thing that I learned from being a lawyer in 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 the short time that I have been one, is that you're always developing those skills and always learning more about what it's what it takes every day. And I still am. So that's the first point. And I guess to answer the remainder of your question, what skills are necessary to excel as a sports lawyer? I can't say personally that I, I have excelled, at least just yet. So I'm not sure I'm, I'm well positioned to answer that. But I would, I, 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 would, I would suppose that a passion for, for sport as the industry in which you work is a good place to start. The ability to appreciate the interplay between various areas of the law and sport, that too. And this probably applies across the board, regardless of where you're practicing. Um, but just your your ability to be very practical rather than technical, which I guess is a skill in itself. So, yeah, I think to to sum up that that that, that that's what I think would it would take to be to be a sports lawyer. Again, I'm not sure about Excel because I can't say I have myself. No, I, I think I think the, the the question was more geared towards as we were talking about before the course offering for for sports law, at least from a from an institutional level in terms of learning about sports law, isn't that accessible? At least it wasn't in my degree. It wasn't featured prominently, and I can imagine in many other unis it's the same case. So I think it was more about obviously you have here this specialist area of law that people don't have any knowledge about really from the get go, and so we've been talking over this past hour breaking down what might be the, the stereotypes of sports law being this highly specific and technical and esoteric and reserved area of law. But also, you know, in order to kind of, you know, give students an idea who would be interested in pursuing a career in sports law, just as, as, as you've been doing, what are the, the things they, they should focus on? Or the, the things that, you know, you've picked up on your journey up until this point that you think have helped you get to where you are today and, and where you're going to keep on going? Yeah. So yeah, I guess yeah. In terms of maybe giving advice for based on where I'm up to at this stage, I would I would always start by saying that getting getting into sports law and making a career of it is is going to be difficult. There's no there's no question about it. And I'd say mainly because there seems to be a demand supply gap in the market. There's there's always going to be people who are attracted by the prospect of being a sports lawyer and want to become a sports lawyer, but there are only so many sports law jobs available. And because of that, it becomes increasingly competitive, as, as, as you would know, as a law student applying for any law job. But I would say, arguably, that's even more heightened when it comes to sports. So on that note, really, 
It's a question of understanding the market, who the key players are in sports law, the type of work that's going around, and really what what it is about sports law that interests you. Finding out why, you know, a bit of introspection as to why you want to do it and what about it makes you want to do it, if that makes sense. And then I would say always sort of seek out ways in which you could add value to yourself, to, 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 to not just say that I'm a law student, I'm a sports fan, therefore I should be a sports lawyer. How can you differentiate yourself? There's a lot of resources out there. I mentioned law and sport at the beginning of this interview. Um, they're, they're, they're a great resource. So read up, educate yourself. It doesn't have to be through doing a master's. I guess discussing the merits of doing a sports law master's I could is, is probably worth another podcast in itself. But educate yourself, reach out to people in the industry to sort of get a sense of their journeys, understand what they've been through and what it what, what it took for them. And what I found, I, I did a lot of this, and what I found was that, that as long as you're sort of polite and your approach is appropriate, people will generally be very forthcoming and very, very helpful. A couple of months ago, I did a, a, a webinar along, along these lines on, on sort of careers in sports law. And I coined what, what I call the, the three Ps for at least what helped me. And those are patience, perseverance, and preparedness. Patience because because it it, it, it can sometimes, in my case, it was a long journey. It, it, it was more than three years um, from the time I quit my last job. Uh, until I started my full-time job um, now at Mills and Reed. So patience in that sense. Perseverance, because you are going to, you, you, I mean, at the end of the day, you only need one job, but you you do need to sort of get yourself out there and really put in those hours at, in, in trying to sort of, you know, apply to places. And preparedness was the last thing I said, in in the sense that you eventually, people always always tell you that, oh, I got I got lucky because this opportunity came up at the right place at the right time. And I believe that I was definitely at the right place at the right time. But I also believe that I was prepared to get lucky. I made sure that that when that opportunity did did arise, I, I was able to give it my best shot to, to, to make that materialize. And that's and that's what I sort of attribute to sort of the the I wouldn't call it success, but but getting me to getting my foot into the industry. I really liked how you put it up into kind of coin it as, as, as the three Ps and it, and it does make sense. And especially as, as you were saying in an industry, which is, you know, hard to crack into having that resilience, patience, result, but also kind of that, that preparedness is a key combination in order to crack into it. And I think especially now, this is what law students need to, need to hear, especially as they face a prospect of entering into a, an economy, which isn't guaranteed to have spaces for them. I think it was the other day, um, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak was saying how people in the industry of arts and, and music aren't, aren't really working or don't really contribute and they should find other jobs or other career paths. I find that especially in these times, you you have to do kind of what it is that you did is and I really have that introspective analysis of what is it that you want to do and, and why is it and having an identification of those reasons really allows for that manifestation of that external practice that you were talking about, you know, identifying the industry, learning who the key players are, reaching out to people, kind of preparing yourself, you know, being patient. 
And I really respect you for, for the journey that you've made since you left your qualified uh, corporate job in India to where you are today, starting out at Mills and Reeves. So I wanted to give you my, uh, just my congratulations on, on, on that journey path. Thank, thank you, Max. I, I mean, I, like I said, I don't, I don't think I've sort of achieved much yet, but it's, 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 it's what I think is definitely a step towards where I'd like to be. And, and a step in the right direction it is, yeah. definitely. <laughs> now, I want to kind of, you know, I, I like to end these episodes on, on a bit of a, of a lighthearted uh, note. You know, you've talked about how passionate you are about sports law and have, how it took you to that end. Now, I want you to tell us what was the one subject in law school that you hated most passionately and why? Well, it was, it was definitely more than one. Um, <laughs> if I had to pick... One, my top one would definitely, most definitely be um, property law. Wasn't a fan of it at all. And I think a close second uh, in hindsight would would be trusts, yeah, equity. Those usually come hand in hand, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, what is it that you didn't like about them? I just thought they were quite dry. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it's a good thing I don't I don't remember much about them. Um, all these years later, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's it's a testament to how to how much they stick with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh no, fantastic! Well, anyways, Rustam, it's been amazing to talk to you today, and and thank you so much for for, for taking the time. I feel we've had Likewise, we've we've covered a lot of subjects and a lot of topics, and, and I really do believe that kind of our listeners here have have learned a thing or two, if not at least me on what is sports law and, and where sports law is heading. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and ask some questions about your journey or all, any, anything sports law, um, can they do so? And, and if so, how? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess they could find me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. My Twitter handle is basically Rustam Setna, which is my name. And on Twitter, on, on, on LinkedIn, you just need to search for me. I guess that's probably the best way to do it. Fantastic. Well, well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, Rustam. Have a good day. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me again. An important update. Since the recording of this episode, the Castor case has had an important development. The athlete has appealed the cast decision to the ECHR as of last week on human rights grounds. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoy learning about sports law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Rustam. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. Enjoying Legal Tea? We want to hear from you. What areas would you like us to explore? What topics would you like us to brew up? Give us a shout out on our social media platforms at LegalTea.uk or send us an email at hello at LegalTea.uk and spill us your tea. Till next time.